Greetings from the Cosmic Horror. The stars are right once again, and the great old ones allow us to talk about for 30 plus minutes H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer who is a genre unto himself. I'm your cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executive of Lovecraft Estate on Yaga, joined in by two from Material World, David Guffey, a professor at Mispatonic University, and Richard Wilson, who is experiencing fear and loathing in Arkham County. <laughs> Our guest today is outlaw poet and nominee for a Nobel Prize in Literature and Kentucky's unofficial poet laureate, Ron Whitehead. He's the author of such books as The Beaver Dam Rocking Chair Marathon. And he's joining us to talk about the gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Welcome to our show. Cthulhu dances circles round the subterranean gloom, paints pink and blue and purple until he fills the world with the smell of roses and a pandemonium moon. What's going on, guys? Hi. Hear from you. It's good, good to, to be you. here. I'm honored to be on the program. It's good to be back connected with Russellville, Kentucky, which is a stone's throw from Bowling Green, where John Carpenter, who was heavily influenced by Lovecraft, as you and everybody listening knows, my favorite film by Carpenter was the original Escape from New York, 1981. Yeah, it's a classic there. So, so it's been, I read Lovecraft and Crowley and Poe and I, the people who influenced Lovecraft and the people who were influenced by him, including Colin Wilson. Have you the mind parasites, the space vampires, the outsider? Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote over a hundred books. Um, I read at least 70 of them. Uh, and he first denigrated Lovecraft as a bad writer, and then he um, then he praised him and and honored him. So, but he's had a major influence, Lovecraft. And here I am talking about it, H.P. Lovecraft, and I, I've been invited to talk about Hunter S. Thompson. But they're both um, fear is an ever present. It's at center stage, you know, in their works. So. It's it's unavoidable fear and loathing. And yeah, you did Hunter S. Thompson, and he yeah. gave a very memorial description of you. You know, it's honored. I name one other poet who Hunter S. Thompson praised. Can you think of one? Yeah, no, I, no, can't. I can't. I <laughs> can't. In writing, I can't. So it was a great honor um, to receive that letter. I was. I received a call from a young man in New York City who had a publishing house and they were publishing the Beaver Dam Rock and Chair Marathon, he and his partner. And he said, Ron, are you sitting down? And I said, no, but I obviously should be. <laughs> and he said, I just received a letter handwritten from your friend Hunter S. Thompson. And I'd like to read it to you. And he said, he read, I have long admired Ron Whitehead. He is crazy as nine loons. That's a great compliment from Hunter right there. I love that. And his poetry is a dazzling mix of folk wisdom and pure mathematics. And Hunter had the greatest respect for mathematics. So it was, you know, in 
December the 12th, 1996, I had the great honor of producing the official Hunter S. Thompson tribute at Memorial Auditorium in um, on 4th Street in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where Hunter wanted to have it. And I brought in Hunter, Johnny Depp, Warren Zevon, werewolves of London, mm -hmm. lawyers, guns, guns and money, David Amram, Doug, historian Douglas Brinkley, and a whole lot of other people. Stan, Hunter's mom, Virginia, who I became friends with at the end of her, her life, his son, Juan, Roxanne Pulitzer, and others. Standing room only event. And the University of Louisville, where I taught, was teaching at the time, had agreed to be the executive producers. In other words, put up the money for the event. All I had to do was produce it, which was, and I had an army of young people, mostly college students, who helped me. And a week before the event, though, I got the message from one of the vice presidents at U of L that they had decided to back out because of the, um, they were afraid that their primary donors would quit giving because of all of what they considered to be adverse publicity uh, because of the feature articles that had been written in the Courier Journal, the Lexington Herald, and a growing number of other publications around the country and the world that all mentioned the use of drugs and heavy drinking. And so it ended up this spectacular four-hour event. And I've produced a few thousand events in Europe and the United States, and this one is just right up there at the top. Um, we made, and we were celebrating the 25th anniversary of the release of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And the event made 100,000, no, it cost $100,000 we made 50,000. So I ended up getting stuck with $50,000 debt. Now I produced all these events and all but a handful have made a little, lost a little, broke even. If they made a little, I always put the money back into producing more, into publishing. Um, for several years there in the 90s, I was producing I was teaching at two different colleges because I put half the money into my creative projects. I was teaching 10 or 11 classes a semester. <laughs> Imagine, oh my God, 3 a.m., no sleep, papers stacked all over the floors. How am I gonna grade all these papers? And But I'm also producing three or four events a week and publishing three or four titles a month. And so I really didn't know what the hell I was going to do. It took me 20 years to pay that debt off. But I, uh, uh, three or four years ago, I finally got it paid off. And people constantly say, you in Kentucky, you could have bought a house for that. And I've said, you know what? I've thought about it many times because I didn't know what to do afterwards. And I said, if I had to do over, I'd do it again. Uh, it was worth it to me and when hunter wrote that he knew what had happened he knew the story and i think that was a way for him to show me how much he appreciated it he watched the film of that event for the rest of his life to his death february 20th 2005 when he shot himself and um so is that why he called you crazy's nine loons for that well that was one reason but uh, we had a respect for each other hunter was 
I consider Hunter and the Dalai Lama to be teachers, great teachers on opposite ends of the teaching spectrum. And I've said that before and people will look at me like, Hunter S. Thompson's a teacher, what the hell are you talking about? And, but he really was, but he was more like a Zen master teacher who would walk behind the students uh, with his bamboo stick and smack the hell out of them. Any that had fallen asleep, smack them on the back to wake them up and yell, wake up. And Hunter was like that. He saw like a poet sees. He saw into people and events and situations. And in an instant, he got the whole picture. He knew what the score was. And he was a visionary. Um, I read all his works and I encourage people all the time. I've studied all the works of George Orwell and his 1984, which was published in 1949, his last book is a literary masterpiece. And I encourage people that yes, he, that was a visionary work, other works were as well, but read it uh, at least also for the literary aspects of it and do the same with Hunter's works, especially in primarily the early works and the letters. Those are his great works, as far as I'm concerned, starting with Hell's Angels. Uh, so how did you first get introduced to you know, Hunter S. Thompson's work? Well, it, I grew up on a farm in Ohio County, up the road from you all, mm -hmm. where Bill, Bill Monroe birthed bluegrass music across the Green River, um, where my distant cousins, the Everly brothers, learned pretty much they ever knew from Ike Everly who was a barber there in Brownie, which is was adjacent to Drakesboro, which was near Paradise. And their dad, um, the Everly brothers' dad would take them to uh, Mose Rager's barbershop. And Mose was a friend of my grandfather's. And I grew up in a musical family. My mom's 91, she's the oldest of um, of 13 and now something's going to happen here in this interview and it's happened to me I used to have to ask my students see life life is a tangent and all things show it I thought so once but now I know it so if I get out on a limb I may ask you where we started so you can bring me back in again <laughs> <laughs> oh god nothing less from you <laughs> that won't be the first time that's yeah. happened on this right got a few limbs and I have lived several lifetimes, many lifetimes in this one. I'm 72 now. Just just restate that question one more time, please. How did you first get introduced to Hunter S. Thompson's work? Okay, so on the farm. Well, <laughs> Daddy was a coal miner for 43 years. I worked at the mines three times myself. And but I understood early on when I was seven, actually that I was born to be a poet. And so that was the path I pursued come hell or high water, no matter what, that's where I was going. And uh, so daddy was a farmer, a coal miner, but he, and he dropped out of school in the 10th grade. And I told my college students, first day of class, when you get your college degree, doors will open for you. 
you'll have opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise. But don't ever think that you're better or smarter than anybody else because some of the smartest and wisest people I've ever known never finished high school. So remember um, that. Remember where you came from. And um, Daddy loved poetry. And he recited, memorized and recited poems. He loved reading and stories. And he turned me on to the works of Louis L'Amour. I love Westerns and Jesse Stewart, that great Kentucky writer. Um, and six of the 30 books I've written have been about um, my experiences in, in Kentucky and uh, about Kentucky. And so Daddy subscribed to different magazines, book clubs, when I was in my early teens, my parents bought us on a payment plan, the World Book Encyclopedia. And I read it cover to cover. It's filled with amazing, beautiful color pictures. And um, But we got Life magazine, Look magazines, these big format magazines, lots of photos and stories. And so that's where I read them cover to cover. I started, when I was a boy, I sold Brit magazine door to door on to farmers and in the little town I was, we, our farm was a mile and a half outside of Centertown population 323. And it was through Grit magazine that I saw book clubs and start and, and signed up for book clubs because the mailman back in those days out on the farm was Santa Claus as far as I was concerned because he could bring stuff in from book clubs from all over the world, wherever I wrote, I could get a response. So I read all that stuff. And and whenever the read the monthly readers digest came, there was something in it called word power. And daddy would get off work from the mines and he'd say, Ronnie, come in here. And I would go in and he would call out a word and I had to spell it and give the definition of it. And I was always real proud to get them all right. So so I read first about the beat generation, what was going on with, um, I think that started with the trial of Ferlinghetti. Lawrence, no, Lawrence Ferlinghetti had to go to court because they, uh, the government confiscated how and other poems oh. in, in uh, the fall of October of 55. There was a six poets at Sixth Gallery in San Francisco, and that's where Ginsburg read how, and Michael McClure said a line had been drawn and drawn in the sand and everything had changed. Everything was new and different from now on. It would never be the same. And so Ferlinghetti was there and he sent Ginsburg a telegram and said, when do I get the manuscript? And so he published the book in 1956 and there was a trial and that made the not only the news in our country, but in the world. And that really put City Lights books, 261 Columbus Avenue, North Beach, the Mecca for independent editors, publishers, thinkers, poets, writers from around the world go there to this day. And uh, Ferlinghetti died um, a little over a year ago. It, it almost made it to 102. We became friends. I was honored by that. So I became started becoming familiar with these people, these free thinkers 
um, out there in San Francisco. I was always curious. I wanted to know. And it wasn't, and I was reading all about the hippies and everything going on with that out of the gate. I had started listening to, I got, um, my brother and I had a bedroom, twin beds up in an unfinished attic in our old farmhouse with holes, little holes in the wall where sometimes the wind whistled through from the cedar and pine trees and snow would filter through in the wintertime. Sometimes there was no heat or air conditioning up there. And, but we slept up there most of my growing up years. And, um, and we had an AM radio and a little light and on a stand between our beds. And I listened to WLS out of Chicago on those every night. And it came in and went out depending on the weather, the clouds. And, and, uh, and so I was listening to Bob Dylan and the Stones and the, and the Beatles and the British Invasion from the get-go because WLS out of Chicago played all those songs. So I was following this, the youth movement of that time in the 60s. I was born on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd, 1950, in the midst of the worst blizzard to ever hit Kentucky. And I've been living, it included lightning and thunder. And I've been living in one storm after another ever since. And I love storms. And, um, and so then along comes the Hell's Angels. And they were really put on the map. Uh, there were little articles about them and the fear that they were inflicting on people in California and the terror. And, uh, and most of the articles coming out about them were copies of what the police had said that journalists were picking up and just reprinting what the police had said, basically. And Hunter was invited to write an article on the Hells Angels for the nation. Um, that was 65 or six right in there. And that, that got him, it got him national publicity. As soon as that article came out, his article on the Hells Angels, it was, as he decided to go meet them and then to ride with them and to get the first hand, which he did for a year. And to get the first hand story. He got real, beat up by them, didn't he? Finally, finally, he said that was it. Yeah, they almost killed him. And it, it was close, close call. And um, so, but he got the book, he got the material from it. And so I wrote, I read about Hunter at the beginning. And and then he is the writer who put Rolling Stone magazine on the map. And so while I left home, I graduated high school in 68. I was 17, I left home and I was in the thick of it. I'd already uh, been reading everything I could get my hands on. And, and I got involved in as much as I could get involved in. And, uh, and so I went to Greece with a friend of mine. I went over there for three months exploring all over Greece. And when I got back, when we got back, we opened an underground bookstore in Lexington on South Line. And, um, and we sold all the books we wanted to sell. I picked them out from City Lights Books and whatever 
I mean, we sold all the beats, Charles Bukowski, Hunter S. Thompson, first Rolling Stone magazines. Hunter S. Thompson put Rolling Stone magazine on the map with his writing, and he was looked to as the voice of a generation. I mean, he told, the, he cut through the bullshit, and he did it with extreme wit and wisdom. The Mark Twain of our era, I felt like and still do. And uh, sometimes people ask me, who's your favorite American writer? And I, I said, you know, I said, yeah, I got so many favorite writers and poets and musicians, and I don't know where to start, but uh, today I'll say Mark Twain. And they looked at me like, Mark Twain, you, you're the U.S. National Beat Poet Laureate. What the hell are you even mentioning Mark Twain for? Shouldn't you say whoever? And, and so then I tell them, you know, Mark Twain turned the literary world upside down by making the heroes of his stories hobos and slaves. Who had done that? Nobody. And he told it like it was, too. And so I became familiar with Hunter and started following him in the 60s and, and continue to to this day. And, uh, and so... The story that made um, Hunter a, a household name was the... Um... The Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. That's right. 1970. Yeah. And he got uh, lined up with Ralph Steadman, the British artist. Some people refer to him as a cartoonist. I just think of Ralph as an artist. And he's a great one, too. And Hunter gave, he gave him uh, Hunter a very distinct look, you know, I guess like, you know, for his stories and his yeah. articles. You yeah, know, the way his art. You always associate Hunter Thompson with Stedman's art. Absolutely. From from the moment they started working together, the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. And uh, Stedman was of central importance to getting Hunter's name and work on the map. Um, so his work was so identifiable and so linked with the stories with what Hunter was writing. And so Hunter gave Stedman, I think they took mushrooms. And, and Stedman had never done anything like that. And it really, <laughs> it had a, a fantastic influence and impact on his life and work. And he forgot it's, to bring his inks uh, for that. And he had to use makeup, you know, to yeah. make the art. Lipstick and makeup, yeah. Yeah, he's he's uh, really innovative. And if you haven't had a chance to see one of the best documentaries ever produced, as far as I'm concerned, for no good reason, uh, about it's a documentary about Ralph Steadman, his life and his work, and his work in particular. It features Johnny Depp uh, and many others. It's a brilliant documentary. Check it out. We premiered it at the 2014 Gonzo Fest. We started the Gonzo Fest in 2010. Denny Humphrey and I, um, I have wor I'd worked for years. Okay, I worked for 26 years to get Louisville, Kentucky, Hunter's hometown to pay tribute to their native son. And I just did my final 
tenth and final Gonzo Fest. And it was incredible. People came from nearly every state in the union. And we had it at the High Horse Bar on Main Street. I wanted to keep it at a small venue. We've had as many as 8,000. We had as many as 8,000 people attend those. And we had it at the big, big four walking bridge down on the river. And um, I brought Denny Humphrey contacted me in 2010 and said, Ron, I uh, want to start a festival honoring Hunter's life and work. And I want to start in the Highlands, but I'm not going to do it unless you start it with me. And he knew I'd been trying since 1996 to get somebody to join forces with me. And I was like, you know, one of these old preachers standing on the street corner, in small southern towns, preaching, nobody listening. And so I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yes, thanks, Denny. Let's do it. But I finally decided there was a time when I thought, I'm so glad I did all of it. And finally, the city came on board in 2014. Um, my friend, Gil Holland, who's a big Hunter S. Thompson fan, he's a filmmaker and uh, a book publisher and urban developer. Uh, I met him through Hunter. He said he's a fan of Hunter's and mine. And he brought out my 20th book. and. Uh, and he's brought out my last 12 albums through Son of Blast Records. And uh, so in 2014, we had six days and nights of Gonzo Fest events in 17 venues throughout Louisville, including at, we had the world premiere showing up for no good reason. The Ralph Steadman documentary, Sony Pictures, uh, worked with them out of New York and they gave me the green, light and I got the green light from uh, the film crew, Stedman's, the film team that had made the film. And I ended up being the racetrack announcer for the 1970 Kentucky Derby in the film. Um, they recorded my voice. They gave me the transcript and recorded my voice. And so you watch the film, you, you can actually just get that excerpt on YouTube, uh, it's and the reason is, it's not because it's my voice, it's because Johnny Depp narrates the race. No, he's reading something. He's reading from the manuscript, yeah, from from uh, Kentucky Derby's Decade and Depraved. While I'm calling the race, and they show the actual race, and I'm the announcer, so you have to listen over Johnny or between Johnny's words <laughs> to hear me calling the race. So I ended up getting assigned big poster from Ralph. Thank you for your, Ron Whitehead, thank you for your voice. And I ended up doing a lot of work with Ralph and I, um, he sent me 40 some, 50 some images of Hunter photographs, but mostly paintings. He, um, and I like the image, the first portrait he did of Hunter, the first that Hunter had agreed to sit for. And I liked it the best. And I sent, but I sent all the images to the production team. We had six people on the production team. And I said, y'all pick, choose the top three. Anyway, we voted, everybody selected that one. That And now it's on the, uh, Gil Holland paid for the banner. We wanted to get it on the big 
photo images down at the downtown high rise buildings in Louisville, but they have they have um, the board of that the people who select those images of Diane Sawyer and and Muhammad Ali and all these other folks who are up on these giant photos. One person voted no, and they, you had to vote unanimous. Everybody's got to agree unanimously to for a person to be selected. And one person said that they thought it would give Louisville a bad image because of Hunter's notoriety for the use, overuse of drugs and alcohol. And I won't go into express all my feelings and emotions, and I won't cuss and rant and rave and give, express my point of view on that subject here on, on this performance, on this interview. <laughs> but I totally disagree with the guy, you freaking idiot. So if you're listening. <laughs> and so anyway, Gil Holland put up the money, uh, five grand for this huge banner on this, which we got on the side of the Bristol Bar and Grill on Barstown Road in Hop in Hunter's um, growing up ground there in the Highlands of Louisville. And I asked the mayor to change the name of Louisville from, I said, why the hell are we named after a French king? Who wants that? I said, let's change the name of Louisville to Hunter's Gonzoville. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I knew he wouldn't do it, of course, but I asked him and by God, he, um, at the unveiling of the banner, he read and made a formal proclamation changing the name of Louisville for the week of Gonzo Fest that week to Hunter's Gonzoville. So I knew this ahead of time and I asked Ralph if he would paint, splatter paint Hunter's Gonzoville so we could add it to the banner that would go side by side with Hunter's portrait. And uh, it's on the side of uh, the Bristol Bar and Grill. And, and the reason I put it there is because I used to take a lot of out-of-town guests there. I took, in 96, I took Hunter uh, twice for dinner. I took Hunter and Johnny Depp and Warren Zevon and a handful of other people to the Bristol for dinner. And they set us up on tables right in the front by the sidewalk where everybody walking by could see who was sitting there in the front window. And, People just kept coming up and asking Hunter, not Johnny or Warren Zevon for their autographs, but Hunter Thompson. Um, and Hunter at one point took his glass of Chevis Regal with ice in it and just threw the whole damn thing over his head, just straight back. And I'm just like, please, you know, no, don't hit anybody in the head, please. And um, and, and he took a steak knife and just at another point he slammed it and stuck it right in the table in the table there and it just stayed there the rest of dinner while we ate and talked. But uh, but I wanted to have the banner put on a a recognizable location that has a historic connection and twenty two thousand people, city of Louisville told me drive by the banner each day and see it. So. The uh, Kentucky Derby article, I guess, introduced um, uh, Hunter to like the world gonzo journalism. Uh, could you define exactly what gonzo journalism is? Uh, gonzo is Hunter. 
um, didn't actually come up with the word, which is now in all the dictionaries everywhere. I've read every definition and every dictionary there is, and they're all terrible. They're insufficient. They don't come close. And it's a broad, and there's all kinds of Gonzo stuff out now. I mean, one of my favorite Muppets is Gonzo, and there's the cartoon character, and there's Gonzo sex, and uh, all kinds of Gonzo stuff. But uh, it just it has an obvious meanings it's spontaneous it's wild it's crazy it's now uh, express yourself now as you are but hunter and i had talked about many things and one was writing and i worked hard with the head librarian at the at the uh, main library in Louisville, where hunter's mom virginia retired as head librarian hunter spent a lot of time there with his friends reading and discussing literature and he was a serious student of literature and uh, convinced that librarian to, to start a campaign. He got an architect and drew up plans to create an extension to the library and rename the library uh, the Virginia and Hunter S. Thompson Louisville Free Public Library and, and to have a, an entire section to devoted to Hunter. And I, I was going to talk with Johnny Depp about donating Hunter's archives. Johnny stayed in Hunter's basement, basement for six months when he was immersing himself in studying Hunter for his role as Hunter in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And that was a time when I was, Hunter was calling me and sending me facts. Actually, I didn't have a fax machine, so he would send them to Kinko's up Barstown Road, and I would have to go up there and pick them up. And I know the young people who worked there loved getting those faxes. But uh, so that fell apart because the city had cutbacks, and instead of getting money that he thought he was going to get, that library director, he didn't. He not only didn't get that money, he didn't get as much he would normally get, and he got a better job and moved on, and there's a new director now. So there was that, and then I brought in Anita Thompson for the first Gonzo Fest in 2010 and 2016, I think it was. I brought in Hunter's only son, only child, Juan, and um, his wife at the time, Jennifer Deborah Fuller, who took care, an incredible lady who took care of Hunter for years, and um, She's the one who took the photo of Hunter and me with me holding Hunter's loaded pistol that he kept by his, his phone. Hunter had several phones, but he had a main phone, which he usually kept on speaker phone. And uh, when I took my family out to visit him in 95, uh, Jack Nicholson called three times. The first time he was just screaming bloody murder, calling Hunter every name in a book. Uh, and and hung up and turns out what happened was Jack had flown out to his home in Aspen to watch a heavyweight football fight with Hunter. And Hunter didn't know he brought his daughters with him and Hunter went over and broke out a window and threw a bunch of firecrackers in like a whole thing lit firecrackers and he went off and scared the hell out of Jack's daughters. <laughs> And so with the third call, though, Jack calmed down and uh, 
and everything was okay. So that was really weird <laughs> to be there, you know, and have Jack Nicholson calling him there, talking with Hunter S. Thompson about everything. And Deborah Fuller took the photo. Hunter said, here, take this. This will get us both into trouble one of these days. And I asked Juan, when Juan moved to Louisville, I, he showed me all of Hunter's guns. It was a massive collection of some amazing guns. And I asked him if that gun was in there. He said he never got it back from the police. I said, I said that was the gun that Hunter shot himself with. And he said probably it wasn't, he couldn't say for sure. But I figured it was. I'm sure all his guns were loaded all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his best known work is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that book? Well, I think it's brilliant. I, um, Hunter did for literature. He started started doing this actually in at the end of Hell's Angels. Um, he veers down a different path and he talks about the edge. He writes about the edge. So he's struggling in the coming years, as he always did, with what to write and how to write it. And I just I took a deep dive uh, for seven years, and I worked with Margaret Ann Harrell, who was the uh, editor for Random House of Hell's Angels, and she uh, got became really close with Hunter. They had a relationship, and she kept all the original letters. Um, and anyway, we worked together for seven years and published a book. It was released by a beautiful coffee table size, full color book. Um, the Hell's Angels Letters, the making of an American classic, Hunter S. Thompson and Margaret A. Harrell in collaboration with Ron Whitehead. And um, so I'm able to see the inside story in those letters. If you get a copy, you can read some of it, um, of that inside story of his struggle. He had already started struggling because they stayed in contact for years and years. And uh, he writes about he doesn't know, he, he's, he wants to write a book about um, the American dream, trying to discover the American dream in search of the American dream. And that's that's what Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is all about. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, if you read Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness masterpiece, that's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Is Las Vegas is America's heart of darkness right there. and but. Hunter S. Thompson did for literature what quantum physics did for science. He showed that one of the basic premises of the scientific method, objectivity, is erroneous. It's false. Quantum physics, quantum physics has shown us that the experimenter changes the outcome of the experiment. Hunter saw that and he talked about and wrote about all the facts added up. Don't never tell the truth. Hunter was a fiction writer. Uh, he wanted to be a fiction writer. He was a fiction writer and he brought, he created this uh, creative nonfiction, this world of bringing realistic 
uh, history into the world of fiction and, and mixing it up and putting himself in a primary way he did that was to put himself in the story and not just put himself in the story <laughs> to allow himself to change the story completely to cover a motorcycle race and then have it turn out to be to talk about so much the human condition in particular so you missed out with talking about how hunter did for literature what quantum physics did for science okay so and that was um he introduced him he, he introduced himself as a fictional character in like Rahu duke that's great and then uh, there were i guess uh, they considered two movies or were based on that. Um, the first one being Where the Buffalo Roam, Saints very loosely adaptation of it. And then the second one that a lot of people think of is the Terry Gillen movie with Johnny Depp. Well, I talked about the Gonzo Fest in 2014, the people I brought in. I also brought in Layla Lulsi. She was she's the executive producer of Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie. And she was keeping me up to date on the, her trials and tribulations, the director she was going through. Lawrence Ferlinghetti used to walk down the hill from City Lights to Zotrope Studios, Francis Ford Coppola's offices there. And um, he was an advisor for the script. And uh, so I found out a lot of stuff like everyone. When she told me she had Terry Gilliam, I said, oh, shit, you got it now. That's it. Uh, that's the magic you've been looking for, and uh, he's one of my favorites. Um, just like, a very faithful adaptation of it. Yeah, that's right. And where the Buffalo Rome is fantastic. Bill Murray just does an incredible job. He's one of my favorite actors. But Johnny, I, Johnny's he's just a good guy. So I just didn't know. So many people try to talk to write like Hunter. You can't write like Hunter or anybody else. You can write like yourself, find your own voice, be your own original voice. That's all we wanted. And if we had added that piece onto the library, then um, then we would the whole the premise would be would have ways for people to find their own original voice as creative people. So I just didn't see how. Johnny could pull it off. Within five minutes, I was totally convinced that that was Hunter S. Thompson, that Johnny Depp was Hunter S. Thompson. He nailed it. He was so good. So Johnny ended up buying Hunter's archives. Hunter kept everything um, from one. And so he's got it now. I saw the pictures in the Hollywood with all the great films of Hollywood is stored in the same building. And so I wanted to ask him to bring it to Louisville. But, and I was hoping that one and his son, Will, Hunter's grandson, might be interested in taking over Gone So Fast and carrying it on, but there's really no interest there. And so I, I finally just said, 26 years is enough. I'm saying, that's it for me for this. Anybody else wants to carry the stuff on, go ahead. And but I'm moving in new directions now and thankful for all of it. Okay. What else you want to ask? 
one of his, I guess, other famous books is Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. It's it's like one of the best political coverage stories ever. Basically about Nixon running for um, re-election. Yeah. And George McGovern being his opponent. And there's a quote from George McGovern that said it was the least factual but most accurate account of it. <laughs> and that's and that's Hunter's writing in a nutshell right there. Uh, the same applied to pretty much all of Hunter's writing. He saw into things. I had the great honor I produced with historian Douglas Brinkley, who's the editor of Hunter S. Thompson's letters, which are some of his best writing too. Doug and I produced a 48-hour nonstop music and poetry insomniacathon in New Orleans um, at the New Orleans Contemporary Arts Center, the Howlin' Wolf Club, and the Mermaid Lounge. The first day, George McGovern was there with Amy Carter, President Carter's daughter, and he gave a talk, and I did a TV interview with George McGovern after his talk. I mean, I tried to track it down, but I've been unable to. I would love to have a copy of that TV interview. I haven't. I don't know what the hell I said. I have no idea. Yeah. I was just, it was just such a great honor to meet him and to, and to visit with him. So there were some, that was a very interesting, I guess, election season because, you know, it was like his running mate, Thomas Eagleton, Eagleton, uh, basically had to be removed uh, because he got revealed he had electroshock treatment. And yeah. then um, there was also the rumor that Hunter started about the Ebogan. So I say that pronounced Ebogan, uh, the, the psychoactive drug for um, Muskie. Okay. Hunter started a rumor about Muskie. Yeah, I started in Milwaukee, I think. Yeah, it was a, he was also running for presidency as well, Ed Muskie. And yeah, he he fell from the league. A lot of it, some people think that is because of the rumor. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. And uh, there was also a letter that was attributed to Muskie, where he's supposed to have written, uh, "Not blacks, but we have Canucks." And uh, no one knew exactly what he meant by Canucks. They thought maybe he meant um, Canadians or something. But you know, they were kind of the same as yeah. yeah. But it, uh, I mentioned these because we'll be t discussing them later on in one of the future stories that that have been inspired by this um, novel to do like almost like Lovecraftian type fiction. Um, with Lovecraft, I mean, with Hunter S. Thompson, he's almost become a part of the pop culture. Uh, you know, he's made it to a Jeopardy answer. And then there's also like Doonesbury, you know, Uncle Duke. Well, and Jeopardy had Gonzo Fest on, on there as well. Yeah, and Doonesbury Hunter hated Doonesbury. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, he despised it. He just yeah. was it because of Uncle Duke or was it because of like a, something else? I, I don't know. I, I think he felt like he should have got money for it. <laughs> 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 I really think that was the issue myself. He was yeah. always needing, needing money. Yeah. He's also been impersonated by another thing. There's a combo called Transmetropolitan, 
And I have a character named Spider Jerusalem, who's very much like Huntress Thompson in the future. He's like cyberpunk, Huntress Thompson. And then the, the Bencher Brothers cartoon has a, a guy named Hunter Gathers. He's a Hunter Gathers. They, I was their featured guest. They came um, from Maine and New Orleans and Colorado to the 10th and Final Gonzo Fest and interviewed people for their program. And, and they interviewed me. The Bencher Brothers did? The Hunter Gathers. Okay. The hunter gatherers. I'm not thinking of their names right now, but um, but they asked me if this if this was the end of an era, and I said I think it's the beginning. Actually, we've just opened the door now. Um, things are opening up in academia finally, slowly but surely, as they always do, because academia is a bastion of conservatism. And it's getting worse all the time. It's one reason I finally said fuck it and got out of it. <laughs> now, you t you're a professor, right? That's all ceremonial. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. not. Yeah, yeah he's I'm, unofficial. Yeah. He's, yeah. Unof honorary. Honorary. Yeah. He's self-proclaimed. Self <laughs> yeah. I gave him that title, but it like goes to. Okay. All right. That's that's good. Yeah, and so, I mean, my feeling is about academia, 90% of it's pure bullshit. So, all right, so, well, I'm glad to see whatever turns people on to Hunter S. Thompson is okay by me. Because, I mean, I've read some of the material that's out there, and I've seen some of this, and, and some of it's like, <laughs> well, that's shit. <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> and but some of it is like okay i dig that um but my feeling is okay i'm not a fan of let's put it in the context of poetry i'm not a slam a, a fan of slam poetry um i met mark smith who founded slam in Chicago, I performed at the Green Mill. He invited me to put a team together, perform at the Nationals, I did. I told him point blank and my friend, Bob Holman, who put SLAM on the global map, I told him both that I don't like the notion of poetry being a competition and selecting judges at random from an audience, most of whom don't know anything about poetry. In the early days, so much of slam was sex and stand-up comedy. And, well, I like both. But I told him, I said, until it, you get some social commentary going on here, it's not going to be worth much as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, but I told him also, I said, but anything... But I think slam's good in this respect. Anything that turns people onto poetry is a good thing. Anything that turns people onto Hunter S. Thompson is a good thing. So, so I'm glad to see it all happening. The influences, it's like H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, look at his life, look at his story. 1890 to 1937, I believe 47 years old when he died. And I mean, what a, a tragic life, mostly. 
and struggle and torment of one kind or another. And not many people knew about him. And now he's influenced people in most of the creative arts. Now, did Hunter S. Thompson read any Lovecraft? I knew he not, read F. Scott Fitzgerald and stuff like that. Yeah, in Hemingway. Yeah, he typed out uh, their book so he could uh, absorb, assimilate the rhythm into his own writing. And he read widely in a multitude of fields. But and my guess is that he did read Lovecraft. But we never talked about it, so it never came up. So I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I, if I had known I was going to be on this program, I would have brought his name up. <laughs> <laughs> and there's debate whether Gonzo the Muppet was named in honor of Huntress Thompson. What is your side on that? It obviously was. I mean, I think it's ridiculous to think that he wasn't, but it's never been stated as a fact that he was. So it doesn't really matter. But you look at his behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point yeah and yeah so the beer named in honor of him the flying dog gonzo beer yeah mm -hmm. yeah those cats, that? yeah those cats were uh have sponsored some of our gonzo fest the guy i forget his name who owns it the brewery but they've kept up with us over the years and um, Stedman did the artwork for it as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lovecraft is, a, I mean, Hunter's inspired a few Lovecraftian stories. And uh, is there something about Lovecraft and Hunter's Thompson that just worked well together? Well, fear. Fear is um, what is, who is, what does Cthulhu represent? Um, it, it represents many things. Um, the ancient ones, fear, some people believe, is the, the dominant force in the world. And it is for many people. And it's a way that people are controlled is through fear tactics. And there's a lot, it's easy to become afraid. There's a lot to be fearful of, especially if I talk about this in my writing in various ways and how to overcome your fears and about facing your fears and but many writers and filmmakers as we know have used the basic elements of Lovecraft's books and of the ancient ones and created their own dystopias which we certainly end up in more uh, in this, uh, we're on the on the uh, tightrope right now, on the verge, on the edge of uh, between calamity on the one hand and this uh, post-apocalyptic world around the corner. Or do we retain some semblance of humanness, which is about where we are now, even though we live in one of the most violent countries in the world here in the US. But uh, it's a country I love and I'm hopeful for, but where are we gonna go next? But Hunter 
this is at the heart, like I said, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness is obviously a primary influence on Hunter's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, with Las Vegas being the heart of American darkness. But Hunter was all he wanted to reveal, he wanted to write about and help America see what path we're going to go down if we don't appreciate nature. Um, he loved nature and he couldn't stand what happened to his own personal environment there in Aspen, part of which happened because he moved there. And then the next thing you know, all these uh, famous people start moving and the prices of properties skyrocketed. And it's like so many settings in Louisville, wherever Bohemian artists come in and set up a scene where they, the main, main object is to create. And creativity is the energy that um, makes life worth living as far as I'm concerned. And then the next thing you know, you've got a yuppies, um, trust fund babies, buying up these fucking pay places that Bohemians have created, thinking that they'll be as cool, as hip, as in, as whatever they think, as the people who created it. And the next thing you know, the Bohemians, the working class, poor creative artists, can't afford to live in those places anymore. And then they move and try to find new homes, apartments, houses, wherever they can. And the scene is over, whatever scene they have created. The goal of which is for everybody to find their own original creative voice. So, do you feel that um Hunter, I guess, took his own life too soon? That he just held on, that he would have been like kind of got a second win during this climate we're having right now? I have no idea, but I, I have no problem with Hunter committing suicide. I was in a, uh, I think it was a thirty-minute film, um, on the road to Hunter. Uh, I think is the title of it. I have a couple people looking for it right now. It's an excellent film. After Hunter's death, these three young women from New York stopped in my apartment in Louisville and interviewed me as they were doing. They interviewed a Columbia professor who totally trashed Hunter, who couldn't stand him. He says how despicable Hunter was. He hated his guts and uh, he ruined journalism and all this stuff. And I did nothing but praise Hunter. and. Um, People look down their noses at, and condemn even people who commit suicide. I think it takes great courage to commit suicide. Uh, I've had many conversations with suicide myself, particularly in my earlier years, before I started living and being my dream, which is a choice I made. It took me eight years to build a bridge from where I was to where I wanted to be to live and be in my dream. But Hunter, he decided, Hunter did what he came to do, and he decided it was time to leave. He had talked about suicide throughout his life at various times, and uh, his health was declining rapidly because of drug and alcohol abuse, and he didn't want to be a burden on anybody, especially in including himself, and he he had always been proud of his 
vigorous, I wouldn't call it youth, but just being, being healthy and strong. And, and he lost that. No, I think Hunter's best books, even though he, like what he wrote after 911, is prescient as anything he ever wrote. And he, he was, he saw what was coming. Hell's Angels, in Hell's Angels, he predicts the state of affairs that we dwell in today with the present political environment that we have today and in other writings of the 60s um, and then later as well. He saw the stuff coming. Now, but, did you read any of the stories uh, where, you know, he's like in, in the fighting off the, you know, encountering Lovecraftian horrors? Did you read any of them? Yeah, I read a couple of them. I watched some of the film. Um, there was like a Hundreds Thompson, The Chronicles of Cthulhu, uh, which is like, I gather it's supposed to be like a five part story, but only two of them ever got posted. Yeah. And it seemed like it was a, Kind of an interesting thing, but I didn't know exactly where it was going. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me when, and it's just something personal that I I have to. I mean, so many young people will come to these stories and, and they don't know who the hell Hunter S. Thompson is. So they see the story and they don't know anything about it, about him, his work. And so I, I try to keep that in my mind when I look, look at some of this new work. And some of these folks are famous. Um, people who do comic books, who, who do graphic novels. Uh, there's a French graphic artist who just stopped by and interviewed me. He's touring the United States. He's, his new book on searching for Hunter S. Thompson, that's not the title, I forget the title, it's all in French, um, will be coming out soon. And uh, and more power to all these people. I appreciate that. It's just like when I think of so many of the great writers of all time, William Blake, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Walt Whitman, to name a few, most of them lived, were undiscovered in their lifetimes. They were known by of some people. But somewhere down the road after they died, somebody wrote a, a biography, sometimes as, as long as 70 years later, somebody wrote a biography, the word started getting out and then it spread. And next thing you know, major influences occur like they have with Lovecraft. But most poets and writers, and that's why I tell people all the time, I don't even think about money. You know, I have my basic needs and I, there are things I'm anti-materialistic by choice. I want to live as simply as possible. My primary focus is my writing and um, the time that Jen and I spend together, time I can spend in nature. I love nature and I have a little writing cottage. I'm turning the yard into a flower and tree garden for the bees and the butterflies and me. I live close to miles of walking trails along the Ohio River. And uh, it's a major de-stressor for me to get out in that nature. My feeling is, and my hope is that some of these people who are 
using Hunter as a vehicle for their story, and some of them are, that they will immerse themselves fully in his work and reach as deep an understanding as possible so they can make a good, just as I hope they do with Lovecraft, so they can make a legitimate association through their storytelling, through their original storytelling. I don't disagree. The, um, the one novel by um, Brian Keene and Nick Lamatas, The Damned Highway, Fear and Love in Arkham. I was I was curious what you thought of that one, where that captured the um, the voice of Hunter. Yeah, I, I don't. The only person I know of who've been able to who's been able to really carry off the Hunter voice is Johnny Depp. But I appreciate other people trying. I have no desire to try even try to sound like Hunter S. Thompson or Muhammad Ali or you or anybody else. People ask me all the time if you could be whoever you would like to be, who would you be? I just say, you're looking at him. I don't want to be anybody else. I never did. <laughs> uh, what'd you think of, um, I guess, Ted Levine as um, Thomas Blackburn in the, the Banshee chapter? I, I just don't. I think it's all interesting. I don't know. I wish I had more to say about all of that. What other question would you, do you have? Uh, Perhaps my end question was going to be, uh, what do you think of all these associations with Lovecraft? Uh, do you feel that this is something that just needs to be, do you feel it needs to be developed more or just like, you know, this is a passing fad, time to move on to something else? Well, no, I think it should be developed as much as people are inspired to, to develop it. Um, and people like Ridley Scott, for example, just one example, one of my favorite movie makers, directors, um go on and be inspired and produce the beautiful work but um lovecraft there i'll say this to close things out the basic difference between hunter s thompson and hp lovecraft is that they lived two distinctly different lives and had and held similarities in view expressed through their writing in particular related to fear and loathing, Hunter made a clear distinction between not a dystopia and a utopia, but certainly the possibility of everything going to hell and some semblance of a decent life, whereas Lovecraft didn't seem to hold much hope, like Burroughs. He's, he's a lot more hopeful. Lovecraft has a lot more in common with William S. Burroughs, who I was blessed to do the next to last interview with. But he ended up saying love is all there is, his last words in a journal entry. Okay, well, thank you and, for your time. Thank you all. Thanks. It's good to hang out. Yeah, yeah. yes. And uh, before we let you go, um, what's your latest project you're working on? Well, I'm always working on a number of projects simultaneously. I got a new book that just came out of hardback, The Great Blue Heron of Quasar Poetry, New and Selected Works, 1992 to 2022, a 30-year period of time. 
that book is available, but but also there's a, a film, a new film that's just released that's now avail available on Amazon Prime Film Documentaries. It's titled Outlaw Poet, The Legend of Ron Whitehead that um, was in over 10 years in production. And there's a section on Hunter S. Thompson and that official tribute, unseen footage in that film. And it tells a story about, it tells some, there's some wild stories in it. I didn't have anything to do with the production of it, but the, the young people, uh, the three production companies, one primary, one Storm Generation Films, then Dark Star TV, then another one. Um, they did a, a fantastic job. And they brought in, they captured some old footage that Mama took some Super 8 video of the, the Beaver Dam Rocky Chair Marathon in which I participated in July of 1973 and rocked in a rocking chair from Saturday morning to Wednesday morning. I rocked 89 hours and 55 minutes. And so I wrote a book about it and I listened to everybody's stories. And it's uh, a really crazy book. I didn't know. There's some, there's some footage. It's a, it's a, I don't know how to even describe it. You know, it's more than just about a rocking chair. You know, there's a lot more that goes on. And, Kind of the wild tangents you go on as well with that story. But that it's um, it's a deep book. <laughs> well, I worked with I worked with a publisher in New York City, Grove Atlantic, the, the head editor there for three years. Uh, he flew to Kentucky and took back the manuscript, which had, I'd gotten up to a thousand pages, and um, and he would send me back entire pages axed out, too experimental, and another page circled. This is okay, and I finally realized he wanted a uh, a an Earthkin Caldwell Tobacco Road, which is a great book. I like that book, but I wanted to show in that book that Kentucky is not a land; it's not just a bunch of idiots. It's a complex and beautiful place uh, with a vast array of of complicated characters. And so I was telling many, I tell many stories about many people in that book. And I combine all the elements of grammar in that book of poetry and literature just to fuck with academics. That <laughs> um, was one of my goals in writing that book. I edited it down to about 200 pages uh, in those three years I was working with this editor. So that did pay off in that regard. And then the small press brought it out. And I, I, I said, if y'all publish it exactly the way I've edited it down, then yes. And they did. Tilt the World Press. And uh, we're now defunct. As mo most small presses go, they don't last long. But uh, so. Isn't that what got you nominated for a Nobel Prize in Literature? That was one of them, but uh, Dr. John Rocco was a professor at uh, State University of New York Maritime, uh, a Melville, Herman Melville scholar, a James Joyce scholar, author of many books, including The Doors Companion, The Sonic Youth Companion, um, and others. He reviewed one of my books for a magazine, The American Voice, I believe. And so he just started following me and 
and write and rave reviews of every new release. And, and he nominated me for a Nobel Prize in 2006. That was an honor. He got beat up by Harold Pinter, if I remember correctly. Probably. I don't know. I think that's who I had up. I, I talked to uh, the guy who nominated you, and he, I think he said Harold Pinter was the one who beat you. So you know. Oh, that sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah, Harold Pinter. Yeah, won that year. All right. Anyway, thank you for coming aboard. Hey, thank you all. Before we sign off, I forgot to forgot to mention in our last episode that we're on Strange Shadows podcast. You know, right. the season two, episode nine, where we talk about the return of the sorcerer, which was definitely a very fun uh, episode. I really enjoyed being on there. And we got into the subject about rugs and oudines for quite a bit. <laughs> and uh, for the season, for episode 10, you can hear me reading the opening to the paragraph for the City of the Seeing Flames. And uh, much to my embarrassment, I was also in the Innsmouth Book Club, uh, episode 72. My embarrassment because I forgot to inform y'all about it. So that y'all enjoy. You wanted them all to yourself. Yeah, yes, yes, it was. I was being selfish. I, I actually almost forgot about it, and I appeared quite late on there as well. But it was it was an episode done in honor of H.P. Lovecraft's birthday, and um, so that was quite fun. And so, David, Richard, and Ron, I see the stars are no longer right. We must cease all discussion to it. They align again next month. Thirty plus minutes of H.P. Lovecraft is sponsored by the new summer blockbuster film *Fear and Loathing* on the campaign trail, starring Johnny Jeff reprising his role as Hunter. This podcast is creating association with LovecraftPod.com and Logan Speculative Fiction Group with help from the Logan County Public Library and the Great Old Ones. Special thanks for Katie Tyson for being the Hell's Angel on the Sonic Highway and Joshua Dukes for the Snot Level. Until we meet again, may you avoid Princess Cthulhu's decadent and depraved Kentucky Derby. <laughs>